I still remember where I was the first time it hit me. I maybe do have ADHD. And it's funny, I posted a TikTok the other day about having ADHD and a good friend of mine texted me and said, remember when you swore to me you didn't have ADHD? Oh, goodness. Well, listen, if you relate to that at any point in your life, I want to share a podcast that you should tune into. It's called ADHD Aha, hosted by Laura Key. It's candid stories from people who share the moment it clicked that they or someone they know has ADHD. In each episode, you'll hear heartfelt interviews about the unexpected emotional and even funny ways that ADHD symptoms can surface for adults. And it doesn't always look the way we thought it would. So check it out. To listen to ADHD AHA, search for ADHD AHA in your podcast app. That's ADHD AHA with AHA spelled A-H-A. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. Welcome to Struggle Care. I'm your host, Casey Davis. And today we are talking with content creator, Frances. She usually talks about Black maternal health and mental health on her page. But today we're going to talk about her personal experience with being neurodivergent. Frances, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Casey. First off, if anybody wants to follow you and hear your awesome conversations about your experience with Black maternal mental health, that's like such an alliteration term for me. So I have to like slow down when I say it. Where can they follow you? So she's having a baby on TikTok and YouTube, Instagram, and she's having a baby everywhere. And I would love for you to come by and learn some more about that if you're interested. And not just mental health, but like physical health as well. You talk about maternal health. Maternal health, like prenatal, labor and delivery, how to advocate for yourself for you and your infant, how to build community while you're pregnant, and then the disparities for Black women in particular. So it's good stuff over there. Okay. So I want to jump in by saying that when you and I first talked about, hey, let's talk about like my personal experience being neurodivergent. And I out the gate was like, so when did you get your ADHD diagnosis? Which I think is funny because you don't have ADHD. Mm -mm. And you're not autistic. Uh Uh-uh. But like, that's right where our brains go when we think neurodivergent. When someone says neurodivergent, we automatically think of those two things, even though I know full well that there's more than just that, but that's still kind of where our minds go. So tell me what your diagnoses are. Okay, so I have a couple. So I have dyslexia, and I would say that impacts my daily life the most, having dyslexia. And then I have sensory processing disorder, which has had different names, but that's what it's called now. Those are the two that impact me the most. And then I have, it's also my, it's a stem. So I stem a lot with my hands, but I have a lot of like loss in my fingertips, like feeling loss. And I've had that since I was an infant. And so I definitely feeling things and I'm very sensitive to certain like sensory. So a lot of like sensory processing things that go on there. But dyslexia is definitely the one that impacts my daily life the most. That's so interesting because I also have dyslexia. Most people know that I have ADHD, but a lot of people don't know that I also have dyslexia, dyscalculia, and auditory processing disorder. And I would say that like of my little jumble bag, dyslexia probably affects me the least. Mm. So I just think it's interesting that people can be different, you know, for like their experience with whatever neurodivergent diagnosis they have. So tell me when you were diagnosed with all of those. I was diagnosed, they, the dyslexia was picked up uh, like officially with like an IEP and like on paper in third grade. Again, it was so disabling for me and held me back so much in learning. They originally assumed that I couldn't see. 
like she can see I literally could cannot process the information from paper in my head and then put it back on paper like that just wasn't working at all and when you are in elementary school that's pretty much all you're doing is you're copying you're reading and then you're like putting it in your brain and then you're putting it back down on paper so I got that diagnosis in third grade in sixth grade I got the sensory processing disorder like it written into the IEP which obviously also affects like how I'm getting the information. Like if the teacher's talking, how I'm consuming the information and kind of having like to regurgitate it back out that I cannot do that. If words are involved, it has to be one or the other. So I have to either be able to see the person's mouth and listening to what they're saying, or I can be reading it on the paper, but I cannot do both like that fill in the blank. Nope, not going to happen. And so they picked up on those things. It's interesting. Those were the early ones. For me, it was the dyslexia, dyscalculin, and auditory processing disorder. Those were the ones that were caught in early elementary school for me too, because they are so directly related to your like immediate performance and writing and reading and all those sort of things. So what kind of well, you have a kind of an interesting story, I think, about how they got caught, because it's just sort of known, if you look at some of the research and things, that young Black children are less likely to have their learning disabilities caught and are more likely to get labeled with behavioral disorders, right? And so whether they have ADHD or they have autism or they have dysgraphia, dyslexia, all those, like they are less likely to be accurately identified as having those diagnoses when they do and often get slammed with oppositional defiant disorder or some other conduct disorder. Absolutely. I would not have gotten diagnosed if my teacher specifically wasn't getting her master's in identifying and treating learning disabilities and neurodivergent the disorders that fall under the neurodivergent umbrella. So I could have got in our school separated you by teacher by last name. So I could have got any teacher, but I happened to get a teacher who's actually actively studying that, was interested in that and caught it. So it wasn't a parent. It wasn't like anything like that. It wasn't like a pediatrician or it was literally like I was in the right class at the right time with the right teacher getting her master's. And as a millennial, the goal for at least in my experience as a Black child with learning disabilities, the goal seems to be passing and disciplining us. Like, okay, like, you're not acting like all the other kids. Like, you're not acting like all the other kids in class. This has to be behavioral. This has to be because you're home life. This has to be because you don't understand. There's no way that your brain works differently. And so I'm very lucky and I've never actually met another Black neurodivergent person that was diagnosed before they hit puberty. So normally it's like, oh, I got a diagnosis at 15, or I got a diagnosis at 14, or I got a diagnosis at 30. But I've never met another dark-skinned Black female that was diagnosed so young. I've never. It's scary to think how much of your childhood, your future, like, comes down to the luck of coming across someone that knows what that looks like. Like, that's not something that is like well baked into our school system. That's not like a, like the school that my kid goes to, there's like a screening process that all the kindergartners go through for, I know at least for like gifted and talented, where they're trying to go through and go like, okay, these kids need to be in gifted and talented. These kids might need something remedial. And then they kind of drill down on are there learning disorders? Are there like, there's a process there, right? When you go to the pediatrician, 
pediatrician, at least for autism, there's a process baked in. You have a certain screening. Every child at 18 months gets a screening with their pediatrician. I mean, it's just, it's baked in. There are so many of these things that are like, I think about like fishing nets, basically, like that we just drag the whole population and see who we catch. But there are so many I think because of the history of learning about certain neurodivergencies and how we've so historically concentrated on what they look like in white males and to a a slightly less degree, but more than everybody else, white females, you know, we don't have good system-wide approaches for actually identifying children of color. No. And I think sometimes people will think that they have like an expertise in treating or cues for every race when it's really just a race. So it's like maybe you studied in a certain region of the United States and you grew up in a Korean neighborhood and you also speak Korean and you're married to someone who's Korean. So like, you know, the nuances of the language and the culture, but then that person might try to get a job in a historical Black neighborhood in a predominantly Black elementary school and think they're equipped and knowing all the nuances within the Black culture. And I see that a lot in educators who diagnose learning disabilities and neurodivergency. It's like, it's not a catch-all. Like, there's so many, we're so different. And I think there's just like, just with diagnosing, a lot of times there's like boxes that they're checking. It's like, okay, when you're talking about diagnosing and treating and noticing neurodivergency in others, that could also look different because our cultures are different. Are you frustrated by buying your kids clothes and having them grow out of them within a week? Do they itch, pinch, and they just aren't comfortable? Well, then you need to check out Posh Peanut. Made from this amazing bamboo material, the clothes are legitimately so soft and they stretch with your kids as they grow. They are four times stretchier than cotton. Made to last, loved by parents, and approved by kids. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, beautiful and stylish clothing for kids and families designed in-house from beautiful florals to all of your favorite brands, such as Hot Wheels, Disney, Hello Kitty, and Barbie. Their pieces are made with that ridiculously soft fabric, and it even stays soft, wash after wash after wash. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code STRUGGLE. Go to poshpeanut.com slash struggle and use promo code STRUGGLE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com slash struggle, promo code STRUGGLE. I've never met a free trial I didn't like or a budget I didn't listen to, which is why Rocket Money is perfect for me. And it might be perfect for you too. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month so I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. And they send me emails keeping me updated with where I am on that budget. Rocket Money will even try and negotiate lower bills for you up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users. They can find and cancel your unwanted subscriptions, and they have saved people over a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash struggle. That's rocketmoney.com slash struggle, rocketmoney.com slash struggle. Shout out to Claritin for giving me some free samples and for sponsoring this podcast. 
I am a seasonal allergy sufferer, which means that sometimes I'm lying in bed reading a book that is super happy, and my husband says, what's wrong? Why are you crying? Because I am sniffling, and he thinks I'm crying. But no, it's just seasonal allergies. Luckily, that does not happen anymore because I use Claritin D. We can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sniffing, sneezing, watery eyes, itchy nose and throat. It's great. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies. It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. As for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter, you don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Even just thinking about like autism and eye contact, and we know that not every autistic child avoids eye contact. But if you think about like, even with your example, like a lot of Asian cultures treat eye contact very differently. And so you can't just be looking for eye contact differences, right? You can't just be looking for, you know, does this person interrupt? Oh, that might be ADHD because certain cultures are more interrupting cultures, right? And I'm also thinking about like one of the things that's really in the headlines right now is how far behind a lot of of our kids in the US are in reading. I don't know if you've seen this as like news story after news story on like, okay, and they'll interview a teacher like, well, I have fifth graders and they're reading at a third grade level. And it's like, poised as this crisis. And I can imagine that if you're a teacher that teaches students, and you're having a lot of them be behind in reading, that it might be really difficult like if you're a kid that's dyslexic to slip through the cracks because you just get lumped in with, oh yeah, all these kids are behind. These parents aren't reading to them. That COVID really messed everything up. And it's really easy to just go, oh yeah, they can't read. Absolutely. It also reminded me, someone told me this and it's never left my brain. They were like, white kids who are a homeschool get are easily getting diagnosed with neurodivergency than Black kids in public school. And I never forgot that. And it just shows there's that assumption of like, you don't want to listen or aren't trying, or there's other factors that are contributing to this. Not like, you know what, let's go ahead and see if we can get an evaluation. And I just, that's never left my head. And there's so much to be said about like the different ways that all of those like different neurodivergent diagnoses can express themselves. Like you can have a kid with ADHD that is really, really sensitive, that is maybe quiet because there's a lot of daydreaming and distraction that maybe struggles with some perfectionism is really hard on themselves. And that is easier to see as something that needs help versus a kid whose ADHD is expressing as, you know, not paying attention and throwing spitballs and, you know, scribbling on their paper. And it's like, that's annoying. And so much of this, right? And not to mention that if you have a kid that can't read because of dyslexia, but they're a child and they don't know that that's why they can't read, they just know they can't do it. And maybe that's embarrassing or maybe that's frustrating and nobody likes to do something they can't do and they don't know why they can't do it. They just know they can't do it. So there might even be behavioral issues that that come from that and being able to figure out is the behavioral thing the issue or is that just a child's reaction to a real and a learning disability that's happening? Absolutely. And I think this is a part also about getting a diagnosis young that can be that I don't really hear a lot of people talk about is it can kind of feel embarrassing because, you know, 
Nowadays, I feel like there's a lot more sensitivity around just like privacy and not making kids feel singled out. But I remember like specific instances in school where they would have me sit at a different table by myself because I was taking the test different. And I remember just feeling so bad about myself during those times and feeling like I was a bad kid. Because when do you normally have to sit by yourself? When you're being bad. (laughs) When you're being punished. Yeah. So I felt so bad about it. So now they're not really doing that anymore. They're not like, okay, if you have dyslexia, stand up. (laughs) Hey, if you've got the weird brain, we're going to put you in this other class. (laughs) Yes. So I'm so grateful that they're not doing that anymore. But I think sometimes with, there's almost this like honor and pride in people who are like late diagnosed neurodivergent adults. It's like, like the stars are aligning. And I think for some of us that are adults who've been living with our diagnosis our whole life, there's also a lot of trauma there. And I think sometimes parents and adults think, oh, well, everything would have been great if I had this diagnosis early, which yes, there are so many tools, like your life could look very different, but there's so much trauma with that early diagnosis for millennials and boomers because it was during a time where there was no sense of autonomy and privacy and like gentleness to it. Mm. I'm so glad you said that because you're right. I talk to a lot of people who are late diagnosed and I myself am late diagnosed with my ADHD. And there is this grief of like, how could my life have been different if I had had the help I needed early, right? And one of the things I did a lot of interviews of autistic adults. And at the end, I always ask them, you know, what would you tell a parent that feels hesitant about getting their child a diagnosis? And every single one of them said, oh my God, please get your child a diagnosis. Please let them afford them a diagnosis. Like it would have changed everything for me. You know, I would have avoided so much trauma if I had this diagnosis. I really appreciate you bringing up that point because that's something that I've thought about too, where it's like, you know, getting an early diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to have trauma. It just kind of means it's going to be different trauma. And not everybody who's neurodivergent is going to be traumatized by it. We're not saying that. But like at the end of the day, I think sometimes it's easier to be angry that you could have had it different, you could have had it different than to sit with the real grief of actually no matter what, it's really hard to have a different brain in this society. It is. Like maybe you would have struggled no matter what. Maybe you would have struggled worse, maybe better, maybe the same, but just in a different way. And that I think is hard. It is. And I think also when we look at when people are like, oh, my life could have been better, it could have been different. Especially when you're talking to someone who doesn't have a diagnosis or isn't neurodivergent at all. Like, you know, it doesn't make sense to me when parents don't get a diagnosis or like it doesn't make sense. It's like, okay, you're also assuming that your parent is going to accept your diagnosis. My family didn't accept my, still haven't, still has not accept that my brain works differently. And I'm a grown up with children and several college degrees and still I'm having the conversation of like, that doesn't work for me. What you want me to do, my brain cannot do that in the speed in which you want me to do it. I'm sorry. It's not going to work. So it's not to take away. I do believe in early diagnosing. I think it's really important. I do also think we make this assumption that parents are going to accept that early diagnosis. And when I say accept, I mean not try to cure you because that's the other end of it, right? So you get an early diagnosis and your parent may say, okay, I want to get my child accommodated. I want to make sure that I take classes and I see you and I give you all the things and do all the things, right? I'm your number one cheerleader. I'm your number one advocate. And then you have some parents that go the other way that are like, okay, well then I want to cure this. I need them to stop stimming. 
I just want them to stop doing what they're doing with their hands. Be normal. Yes. And then you have other parents who are just like, that's a school problem. I'm going to feed you. I don't want to mess anything up. So I just want everyone to just take it easy on themselves. Like, just try to take it easy. I think there's some relief in, you know, maybe you weren't maybe you weren't robbed of some better life. Like maybe life is just hard sometimes. And you know, it's that's like sad and relieving sometimes weirdly at the same time. And I think like as a parent of neurodivergent children, like even when you're trying to do it right, there is no handbook because like what I find myself in this situation is like, okay, I hear autistic adults and adult ADHDers like talk about, I wish that my parents would have recognized that I was different. And so that I didn't feel weird and sort of like hidden and that I didn't understand. Like, I wish that it would have just, it wouldn't have been like a dirty word. It wouldn't have been talked in whispers. So it's like, oh, okay. So we want to be open about this. We want to talk about this from a young age. We want to recognize that you are different and bring in those accommodations. At the same time, you're going, okay, but like, I also don't want to create this situation where a child feels like their everything is about their diagnosis or that mom has to tell every passerby on the street about their diagnosis. You know what I mean? Like even with babysitters, here's like a good example. So like my children are three and five and my daughter, many people who interact with her for a couple of hours, especially if they're not super knowledgeable about autism, may not pick up that she's autistic. People that know about autism do, but like, you know, get what I'm saying? And so when we get a new babysitter, especially one that maybe is just going to be there for a couple of hours while I'm home, there's always this like, do I tell them? Because on the one hand, I want them to know that she's autistic. And so, you know, if she seems like she's not responding to you in the ways you're used to, that's what that is. On the other hand, is that like, what is the impact of that? Where it's like, this is my daughter. She's autistic. This is my daughter. She's autistic. Like this needs to be front and center all the time, all the time, all the time. And so as a parent, like finding that balance of like, it's not hidden. It's not a bad word. We celebrate this thing about you. And sort of this, what can be like this icky let me tell everybody your medical information. There's no guidebook to how to do that right. It's hard because especially in the age of, and I was actually really grateful. I had one of my followers on TikTok message me and she has a son who is an adult with autism and he's nonverbal. And she was like, I really want to share my story, but I don't want to overshare. And she sent me this, like a novel about like her concerns and everything. And I said, okay, do you want me to respond to you this as a fellow content creator? Or do you want me to respond to this as like a very protective parent? Like, how do you want me to receive this? And she's like, ah, both. I was like, okay. (laughs) I said, I'm going to be honest with you. There is not a lack of information on autism on the internet. I do not think you sharing videos of how your adult child processes the day. I go, but one thing I do know is that now everyone is seeing their moments. Everyone is seeing their story. I said, I don't think there's anything wrong if you want to share how you organize doctor appointments or maybe how like you spend time alone to decompress at night. Like that is, I would love to know how you decompress at night. Like that is fine. And I think that's the tricky part, especially as millennials, is that we're having this very real conversation about privacy for ourselves and for our children. But then at the same time, you want to make sure that you're protecting them and you almost don't want to feel like you're setting your child up. Like, well, mom, like, why didn't you? Mom! (laughs) Right. I even feel weird, like, mentioning it right now. Like, I don't know how she's going to feel about 
her diagnosis, her neurodivergent. Like, do I, like, is it weird? And then I think about my other kid. Like, is my other kid going to grow up and read my content and be like, shit, mom, you never talked about me. Right. You always talked about the other one. And I don't want the other one to be like, you only talked about me when you were saying I was autistic. It's like, I'm sorry. I, I don't know, man. We're all doing the best we can. It's so tricky. But the beautiful thing about it, and I will just like say this like off cuff. And this is what I ended what I told her. I said, I should not recognize your child in public. If you truly want it to be privacy, if your concern is privacy, and I do think it's also a little different when you're talking about an adult who doesn't use the internet and can't verbally consent. I said, I should not recognize your child in public if the goal is ultimate privacy. And I was like, that's my rule of thumb. I don't want anyone to be able to recognize my family in public. Maybe me, but not my family. And that's just for safety. And I tell people, you have to do what everything is best for you and your family. But in the last five years, we've moved four times. We're a military family. I'm constantly moving. I don't have a big network and safety net where I physically am. So for me, privacy is very important for also just my safety. So everyone has to do what's different for them. But I understand being diagnosed and being a parent of a child getting a diagnosis, especially when it's new and at the beginning stages, is the loneliest place on earth. It's lonely. So the instinct to want to reach out and build community or the instinct to be like, if I would have known this five years ago, what has like helped me so much? I want other parents to know there is nothing wrong with that desire. That's called being a human being. Wanting to see other people win is called being a good human. Wanting to help someone avoid heartache is called being a human. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we're alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes a life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present, when the future no longer is a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean when you have a child to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Hey, if you enjoyed my episode on IEPs and you want to listen to more podcast episodes about IEPs, I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Urtube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. You might have heard me talk about IEPs on my episode, and this latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I checked out these episodes, and I think that they are a great place for you to go after listening to mine. They go into a little more detail and answer a little more in depth about what an IEP is and whether your child needs one. So listen to Understood Explains by searching for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. You're right, though. Like, there are ways that we can do that locally. Yes. With families in our community, even if it is online, having a closed group of online mothers or fathers supporting each other is different than making TikTok videos that every Sam, Dick, and Sally can, like, scroll upon. 
Yeah, that's really good. I don't want to miss, I want to definitely get to these other questions that I have for you because I think it's interesting to hear. Sorry, tangent. No, no, it's not a sorry thing. Okay. I love the tangents, <laughs> but I want to get into talking about the kind of accommodations that you had as a child because a lot of people, especially if they're later diagnosed, don't even know what kind of accommodations are out there. And I think also a lot of parents go, well, what's the point of this diagnosis? What are they going to do about it? Right. So tell me some of the accommodations that you had as a kid. Okay, I will tell you about go from most impactful to least impactful. You think that's okay. Being able to walk. So I had a little book, little notebook, and all I had to do was raise my hand. And that just meant, okay, she just needs to go on a walk. So I would walk from one classroom to the other. So they had a teacher at one end of the hall that knew I was able to walk the hall. I would leave my class, walk down to the hall, knock on the window of the other class. So then that, that let the teacher know I did a three knock. Then they, oh, okay, Frances is on a walk. She needs to, she's overstimulated. She just needs to go on a stroll. That was huge. That was life-changing. Tests and quizzes for me were very hard. When I was in a, a timed environment with my dyslexia and trying to process information, I almost felt like the room was getting smaller and smaller and smaller when it was timed. And this also helped with, I could never do Scantron. So that's the second thing. So the walks, not having to use Scantrons. I think a lot of times people get scared when they hear there's something their child just can't do instead of, okay, but what can you do, right? Like at the grand scheme of things, does it matter if your kid can use a Scantron? Like, does it really matter? (laughs) Yeah. But that, I didn't realize how, for me, disabling that was, like, I'm looking at the test. I'm looking at the quiz. The answer's A. And having to keep my eyes level, number one is A. And keeping the lines in order, I was doing bad on exams when I didn't need to. So that accommodation, if I didn't have that accommodation, I probably wouldn't have gotten to college. That followed me even to the SAT and through college. I did not use Scantron test, anything that had to take it from one paper to the other. I did not do So you just got to circle it on the paper itself. On the paper. If there was something where they were like, oh, you got an essay, you got to write it in a blue book. I did not do that either. I verbal it. I did it verbally to the professors at the end of the, like end of the day. So I had a scheduled time with my professors where I would go. There was the like secretary for the different departments. They would give me my exams in college and I would verbally give them the answer. That's so cool. No writing. Couldn't do it. Never going to do it. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it at, in second grade. Couldn't do it in sixth grade. Couldn't do it in eighth grade. I have my bachelor's in history. I spent an hour verbalizing my thesis. Wasn't going to happen. Wasn't going to happen. So those two modifications changed my life. That's so cool. There was a girl. So I had dyslexia and I ended up being in like a summer remedial program. Okay. Where, you know, you go and you have to do like a lot of workbooks with one-on-one with like this person and then you get like points and then you get stuffed animals for like doing this schoolwork in the summer or whatever. That was really revolutionary for me. But I remember there was this other girl in my class that has dyslexia. And I mean, you have to remember, for those of you listening, this was maybe early 90s, right? Like early to mid 90s. Okay. So like laptops are not a thing, right? That's not a thing. Okay. The internet has not been invented yet. Now, don't get me wrong. Laptops exist But it's like a very rare thing to see one. They're a very like expensive thing. However, the one girl in my class that had dyslexia, they would always bring in a laptop 
for her for tests because her accommodation was that if there was writing, she got to type it. Because when she wrote, there was a, you know, like the actual letters and flipping and all this stuff. And so, but they didn't show up when she was typing. And I mean, they were so rare to see that that's why it like stuck in my head because everyone was like, why does she have a computer? Right. (laughs) What is it? That's it's modifications are a good thing. Accommodations and modifications are a good thing. And I wish more people understood that. And did you get moved? Like, did you have like a special seat in class at all? No. If there was a class that I had teasing in, I do remember a few times where I would be teased for like doing things different. And I noticed that when that would happen, they would move me towards the back and like the teaser towards the front. And I think that was just because at least millennials. Oh, then they can't see you. Yeah. They can't see what I'm doing. Got it. And then also, I think for like millennials, at least for us, the teacher's desk was typically in the front of the class. And so the back is kind of like where you got to like kick it and like pass notes and eat candy. It was kind of like a punishment to be in the front. So if I was like teased or whatever, they would move the like the whoever was teasing me towards the front of the class, which was in my IEP that I have very real emotional reactions to being singled out and teasing. So that is something that was in my IEP by fourth grade, which I am very grateful for. Because I That is amazing. I spent almost all of third grade not talking because I got teased for writing my... I wrote my name. I misspelled my name. I was so distracted by like this exam I was doing and I was like so nervous about messing things up. I like, like forgot the R. Like it was... I spelled my name wrong. And I was teased for it and I was like done. Not talking, not participating, not trying. It just destroyed me. So... Have, there's nothing wrong with recognizing that your child has big feelings when it comes to their diagnosis. And just like, you, think about it. There are adults who can't go through the workday if their phone dies or they leave their phone at home. So to expect a child to be at school for eight hours and feel different and then have to have the maturity to handle feeling different and also people seeing that they're different is a lot to put on just like a little heart and a little brain. So I would encourage anyone that if you are getting modifications and accommodations to your child's IEP, the goal shouldn't just be educational and be just for them to assimilate. I definitely encourage you to just make sure that you're checking for their mental well-being as well. And that can simply look like, okay, if there is a disruption in class, my child doesn't like to be stood up for in front of an audience. So if there's a if they're getting picked on because of their neurodivergency or whatever it is, it's better if you talk to this student that's being mean to my child, talk to them in private. But if you stop the whole class to be like, no, don't make fun of Francis. Like that is going to cause a lot of emotional distress. That should be in an IEP. That should be in there. Yeah, for sure. Did you have, did your school do a lot of reading out loud? Like, you know, when they call, I think they call it like popcorn reading where each kid would have to like read and then you didn't have to do that? I didn't have to do that. They, for what wind up happening is third, fourth and fifth grade, they try to make me. And then I got to sixth grade and I just had a conference and I just broke down and I was like, I can't, we had a substitute teacher. I'll never forget it. I refused to read. So she made me stand for the rest of the class. And I was so traumatized and I was so embarrassed. I just stopped doing schoolwork at school. Like I just refused to participate like in that class. And then it finally came out in a little like conference meeting and I just started bawling. (laughs) 
and my teacher was surprised. She's like, I've never seen you cry before. And I was just like, so sad. Like, she made me stand up. And I'm so grateful that this teacher took it seriously. That substitute teacher was no longer allowed to substitute any classes I was in. They took it very seriously. And yeah, I just, and they were like, once they got to the root why I didn't want to read out loud, they also came to the conclusion once I did start reading out loud, all it was doing was causing me pain and embarrassment. And I wasn't learning anything. Like, we can just get her, she can just read to herself or by herself or read at home. There's really not, what is a 10-year-old really learning from reading out loud with dyslexia, with such a strong emotional reaction to being embarrassed while reading out loud? I knew the words. I was passing my spelling test. I was at the appropriate reading level. So this was just an exercise that was causing me trauma. So they stopped making me do it. And you know what? I can read. I'm fine. I made it through. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so moving past school age, what kind of accommodations did you get when you moved into a professional workplace? I would say probably the biggest accommodations. Well, before I get to that, if you do have a diagnosis, if you go to your state vocational rehabilitation, voc rehab, they will give you a letter. And that letter says that you have a recognized disability under the ADA. What that does is you don't have to give it to your employer if you don't want to, but what that does is it meets the criteria for hiring disabled peoples for your employer. And then it also kind of non-verbally gives that signal, I might be needing some modifications without having to be like, hey, I have the, it's not always comfortable to talk about what you have going on. So one big thing for me in the professional world is I get asked for all deadlines to be given to me in written form. If you see me walking to get a cup of coffee and you go, hey, I need that, you know, a day early. I'm not going to remember that. I need changes and deadlines to be in written form, as they should be. I've also noticed that most of the modifications I have in the professional world are just common courtesy, but verbal, uh, written form, changes and deadlines. That's very important. Another modification, because I know for me, I have a very emotional reaction to being singled out, as well as because of the IEPs at such a young age, I do think there's like regular reviews and like sitting down, I kind of get into that like IEP sp headspace, like oh, we're all focusing on me and it can make me really nervous. So something I ask for is at least two business days of what we're going to discuss and any performance reviews. It is not helpful to go in because one, I'm dyslexic. So sometimes, a lot of times with performance reviews, they're like, okay, now let's go to this line. But I'm like, ah! So if you give it to me two days ahead, I can read what the performance review says and I can more easily concentrate because in performance reviews, typically they're doing two things, telling you how you're doing and they're kind of like either aggressively or passively tell you what you need to change. That is a lot when you have any type of neurodivergency to handle. And I don't care what it is. It's just a lot. So that is something that's been very helpful is I need it in writing. Like if we're going to talk about my performance, if we're going to have a whole meeting and you're going to hand me a piece of paper, I need to see it beforehand if you want me to actively verbally participate. If you just want me to sit there and be quiet, fine. If I need to participate in a meeting, whether it's a business meeting, peer review, I need the content in advance in writing, not bulletins of what we might go over. If you need me to verbally participate, I need the subjects in writing. That has been an accommodation that people don't necessarily love, but it's also the law. 
So, <laughs> so get over it. I love that. Well, Francis, thank you so much. We're out of time, but I really appreciate our conversation. And it's always really a delight to talk to you. Will you tell people one more time where they can find you online if they want to follow you? You can find me at She's Having a Baby on TikTok and on YouTube and all the things. And Casey, I adore you. You can also see me in Casey's comment section all the time. <laughs> Hopefully, Casey, you're doing such great work. I love your podcast. So this is really fun. Thank you. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.